You know, you never really know when the moment of the decision will come. Perhaps it will be on the school playground when you see a group of bullies picking on a fresh victim. Or maybe at a party when someone makes a tasteless or racist joke. Or at work when we recognize that the automobile company that we've proudly worked for for years has been knowingly installing faulty accelerators. Or when we overhear a woman at the Rite Aid pharmacy forced to choose between the five prescriptions she needs because she lacks insurance and can only afford to pay for two of them. Such moments come in different ways to each of us, but they do come. They remind us that the decisions we make in our day-to-day lives do make a difference. They point out the ongoing choices we make between standing uncomfortably and silently on the sidelines of our messy world, unsure of what to do, and acting deliberately in small but concrete ways to create a more compassionate world. They return us to the powerful truth that in critical times we can and must not only think ethically, but act ethically. I loved our story this morning. I'm wondering how many of you read Three Cups of Tea. A good number of you have read it. I really recommend it. Um, That's the book, of course, upon which the story um, this morning was based. It's the story of Greg Mortensen's own transformation from being a mountain-climbing bum, which was his term for himself, to being seized seized with a fierce desire to make a difference. A fierce desire to not be stopped by the improbability or inconvenience of it all. A fierce desire that grew in him not from some grand plan or vision, but through quietly sitting, watching, sipping tea, talking with people around him, the people of Corfay who had nursed him back to health, but mostly watching this amazing group of children who had also a fierce desire, a fierce desire to learn. Children who would sit on that frosty ground in a cold and inhospitable landscape in disciplined study every single day, whether their teacher was there or not. And their teacher was often not there because it cost the community a dollar a day to pay for that teacher, and they couldn't afford it. Those children who every day rose and did all of their chores for three hours, they rose at 4.30 in the morning, worked until 8 for the privilege of going to their little school in the dirt. They started each day, it turns out, by standing at attention. Again, whether the teacher was there or not. Isn't that amazing? Standing at attention to sing the Pakistani national anthem, singing the words, this flag of crescent and star leads the way to progress and perfection. 
which became for him unbearable to hear as he wondered why his government would pour, that government would pour money into a costly ongoing military standoff with India to control the nearby borderlands when they would not spend even one penny to lead these children such a small distance toward progress and perfection by providing them with a school teacher. Sorry, my voice is it's leaving me, but we hope it hangs in there. At the heart of this book, of course, is a powerful but simple message that we each, as individuals, have a power to change the world. One person, one cup of tea at a time. Of course, all change entails courage, and all courage entails risks. And in his case, the risks were nearly impassable terrain, bloody wars waged by huge armies, prejudice, religious extremism, cultural barriers. But most hard for him to bear was the hate mail he received, the hate mail and the death threats after September 11th, this hate mail coming from the people in his own country, America. He said, I expected something like this from an ignorant village mullah, but to get those kinds of letters from my fellow Americans made me wonder whether I should just give up. He did not give up, and there are now more than 131 schools in Pakistan and more recently in Afghanistan. As I was reading the three cups of tea, I recalled a story I read once called Women in Loud Shoes. It was written when the Taliban had full control of Afghanistan. The story describes a visit that the author made to a hospital complex in Afghanistan where she inadvertently parked pretty far away from where she was going in the hospital. It took her, it seemed like, miles to, to walk through the, the parking garage and the, the long um, hospital corridors to get where she was going. And she, as she walked, she became, became very aware of how loudly her heels clickety-clacked along the tile, announcing her presence. And then she remembered reading a list of crimes for which the Taliban rulers might arrest and imprison women or worse. And among those crimes was listed women walking in loud shoes. For walking in loud shoes and making her presence known, a woman could be seized off the street or from her home and beaten or thrown into a cell. Women and children could not be seen. Neither of them had a voice. They were not, in fact, supposed to exist. She closed her reflection by saying something like, once you realize that walking in loud shoes, or any shoes at all, or simply walking safely, as we do every day, is a privilege and a luxury, then the burden is on you. The burden of response, of giving back and taking risks for what is right. The burden of courage and clear speaking and clear thinking. The burden of gratitude and compassion and respect is on you. 
And one thing, of course, can lead to something else. Now, respect for the inherent worth and dignity of every person is at the heart of who we are as a religious movement. Respect for the rights of conscience. Respect especially for those less powerful and privileged than ourselves, knowing that we must somehow figure out how to ensure that our children grow in wholeness and without fear, that the voiceless must be heard, the ignored attended to, and the oppressed set free. An elegant little book came out in about 2005, and I read it from time to time. I pick it up and I ponder it, and I'm not sure that I quite get it, um, but I'm offering it to you for your consideration and your feedback. This little book is a book by Paul Woodruff, and it's called Reverence. In it, the author claims that reverence consists of the capacity for three feelings. Awe, respect, and shame. Now, I'm sure that most of the people in this room would have no problem connecting the experience of awe and respect to reverence. But shame? We liberal religionists tend to run for cover from that concept, and with good reason. How many times throughout our history and in our own lives has shame been used as a way of invalidating a person's sense of self, leaving us feel, feeling irredeemably flawed in some way? Shame without respect and awe does that. But for Woodruff, shame is the emotion that a reverent person experiences when he or she is aware that they have violated another, treated them with contempt or disrespect, treated them as less than. He agrees that shame can go terribly wrong, but he also holds that feelings of shame and the fear of shame push us to live better and be better people. We all miss the mark and hurt people from time to time. But Woodruff says that we can't feel shame or experience dissatisfaction with our own behavior without feeling respect for something larger than ourselves, our ideals. We know when our dignity has been violated. It's that emotional pain we feel when we've been insulted when we're made to feel deliberately or maliciously ashamed and humiliated, when our privacy has been invaded, and when part of us wishes that we could, uh, which we would prefer to keep secret from the world, has been exposed somehow for people to see. Our dignity has been assaulted when our reputation has been attacked, or when we sense that those who somehow have power lord it over us and make us feel small. Has anybody ever felt those feelings? (laughs) It takes work to ask forgiveness. It takes courage and compassion and fierce desire. But it it is also the thing that binds us to each other in healthy and healing ways. Pablo Neruda, the poet, says, all paths lead to the same goal, to convey to others what we are. And we must pass through solitude and difficulty, isolation and silence in order to reach forth 
to the enchanted place where we can dance our clumsy dance and sing our clumsy song. But in this dance and in this song, there are fulfilled the most ancient rights of our conscience in the awareness of being human and of believing in a common destiny. Greg Mortensen did not consider himself to be brave. He describes himself in self-effacing terms as a profoundly bewildered man, as an incorrigible introvert, as an awkward, soft-spoken, ineloquent, and intensely shy person. But somehow, this soft-spoken man has managed to earn the respect of the village elders and Mujahideen in some incredibly tough areas of the world. Why? Because he treats each person with utmost respect, making sure that no one including women and children, is excluded from the dialogue. In so many parts of our own lives, we too, to use Neruda's words, must pass, must pass through solitude and isolation, pass through difficulty and silence. I think of how so many of our schools have gotten off track. They seem to have failed to understand that you can't teach children and expect them to learn without demanding a basic level of respect in the classroom. I read a staggering figure recently. According to the National Youth Violence Prevention Center, nearly one in three youths nationwide report either being bullied, having bullied someone, or both. Our schools are hotbeds of bullying. For students who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender, the statistics are grimmer. Nearly 9 out of 10 LGBT youth, that's 86.2%, reported being verbally harassed at school in the past year because of their sexual orientation. That's astounding. Nearly half reported being physically harassed, and about a quarter were physically assaulted. This was just last year. One of the things I'm most proud of in our Sunday school is the time spent in helping our children to understand the consequences of bullying behavior and to realize that there are no innocent bystanders. They're taught that when they're in the presence of an act of bullying, they have an ethical decision to make. If they remain silent, they are part of the problem. As a witness to bullying, they are told they add to the shame of the victim. In fact, in the bullying dynamic, they learn the bystanders are the most powerful people present, not the bully. Statistics show that in a majority of instances, when a bystander in intervenes, the bullying stops within 10 seconds. 10 seconds. And they don't have to show any force or say a word. They simply have to stand with the victim and make eye contact with the bully. That's all it takes. That's what happened back in the 1940s when Jackie Robinson integrated baseball. Robinson had to un endure unbearable disrespect. 
the shouted racial slurs every time he got on the field, the threats to his life he was spat upon, while his own teammates stood there silently. But one day, in the midst of it all, the Dodger shortstop, Pee Wee Reese, walked over to Robinson on second base and simply stood next to him, looking directly at the hecklers. Years later, he was asked what had motivated him to do this. Something reacted in my gut at that moment, he said. Something about what, the unfairness of it, the injustice of it, I don't know. Robinson never lost his temper in those moments or returned insult for insult. He just stood there and played brilliant baseball. And Reese took his cues from Robinson. He simply stood with Robinson, making eye contact with the offending fans. I love that we give our children strategies for dealing with bullies, and I love that our children know that they have a part to play in changing the culture of bullying in their schools. Our Sunday school director, Peggy Gates, tells stories to the children in our Sunday school of other children in the Sunday school who have taken strong stands. She tells the story of 11-year-old Claire Picorni, who a few weeks ago was sitting in her lunchroom with some classmates at a, at a table, and another girl approached the table, and one of the girls said to that girl, you can't sit here. This table is for friends. And the girl stopped and turned and slowly walked away to sit alone at another table. Claire left her table and walked over to the girl, sat down with her, and then had lunch with her, had lunch with her for days. And she was joined by another friend, emboldened by Claire's courage to buck the tide. Because I um, get to work with Peggy, I hear these incredible stories all the time. It's really amazing. I love it. Every week, however, we hear of another child somewhere in America who has taken his or her own life because of the unrelenting emotional abuse that they are receiving from their peers, either in person or through cyberbullying. I'm sure you've read those accounts. I was actually almost one of those children. When I was nine, I was in a bike accident that caused a skull fracture and um, considerable brain injury to my frontal lobe. And though I eventually regained my speech and memory, though. Sometimes I do lose words. (laughs) Um, I returned to the fourth grade with a shaven head and a large red scar, kind of Harry Potter-like, down my forehead. Um, And the children teased me and taunted me. They called me um, a favorite name, Retard, and would run away when I came down the halls and sort of mock fear of me. They waited and threw rocks at me after school as I walked home. My mother tried to talk to the school. She was pretty shy about this, but I know that she did this. But the teachers and the administrators, it turned out, did nothing. Um, I don't remember a whole lot of the details, but I know that after a few months of this, my mother took me home and had me homeschooled for a year. 
And then um, she finally just decided it would be best if we moved away. What the research has found since then is that if just one peer overcomes their own fear to step in and offer even the simplest gesture of solidarity, saying, stop, or simply standing beside that victim, making eye contact with the bully, and then walking away with the victim at their side, it can make all the difference in the world. The fact is that every instance of bullying is an opportunity for the bully to learn a new way of belonging, for the victim to gain a new aura of self-confidence, and for the bystanders to practice the principles of justice, equity, and compassion. Each time we stand up for somebody who is being bullied, we stand up for the principles of ethical culture. Each time we are victimized and are able to defend ourselves with courage and dignity, we grow our soul. Each time we recognize the bully in ourselves, painful though that recognition may be, we redeem ourselves. Years after that fateful afternoon on the baseball diamond at Pee Wee Reese's funeral, Joe Black, who was another African-American major leaguer, recalled that he had told Reese, when you touched Jackie, you touched all of us. We all carry with us the emotional imprint of words, for better and for worse. A teacher's praise, a bully's taunt, And I can't imagine what those children in those war-torn countries must feel that all the way across the globe there was a man willing to fight his own shyness and all of the many obstacles he faced to stand by them. Most of my life, regrets have to do with either something I said or something I didn't say. Sometimes silence is not passive. It's the active um, activity of withholding of words, as in those times when we've spoken the truth but didn't really say anything. All these words, spoken and unspoken, rattle around in our lives and are very much a part of the story of who we are. I think of the part our country has played in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. I think about our beautiful country and our people, the goodness of all of our people dancing our clumsy dances and singing our clumsy songs. We see the footage all the time from Afghanistan and Iraq, people who speak the language of playfulness and romance. Adults and children who know of great destruction and who also have a fierce desire to convey to others who they are in all their fullness and goodness. Gordon Cosby, who was a Baptist minister, said 20 years, we go numb in the midst of a society filled with violence and we need, in the face of that numbness, to be so moved that we break through to a place an energy living inside of us that can speak truth to power, an energy that we as a community can enable in each of us, an energy that the world needs. And he called this being seized by the power of a great affection. 
I close with a story from one of the websites I check in with from time to time. <clears throat> the website is called Voices in the Wilderness. It's an international peace group which travels to scenes of conflict around the world and brings out those stories of the people who live there. Kathy Kelly, who is their founder, their very courageous founder, tells this story. In January of 2002, I visited the Baghdad School of Folk Music and Ballet in the capital of Iraq. The children there were buoyant. Their school, one of the finest in the Middle East, taught Arab and Western classical music, dance, and art. I wandered in out of the into the classrooms, marveling at how obviously this school worked. In the art department, I happened upon a display of children's drawings, one of which, done with pastel magic markers and chalk, showed a jet plane plunging into one tower of the World Trade Center. Do you think I could meet the person who drew that picture, she asked the children. And then she says, like they were... Uh, their own little secret service. In three minutes, they had the artist there, all of 11 years old, and he was so proud of his drawing. I asked him, can you tell me what was on your mind when, when, you, when you drew that? And he squared his shoulders, and he said, Allah wanted this to happen to people in America, so people in America understand what happens to other people when America hits them. By then, his teacher had sidled up, and so he added, and we love the people in America, and we want to be their friends. So Kathy Kelly told him about what it was like in New York City on September 11th. She told him about families who had carried banners that said, our grief is not a cry for war, even though they themselves had lost people they loved. She told the children about a beautiful song that had been sung at hundreds of memorial services for the people killed, an anthem that celebrated people's common hopes and lives. And they said, yes, madam, and why don't you teach us this song? Well, her Arabic wasn't good, and she said she had a terrible voice. But the director of the school, Hishan al-Sharaf, who didn't understand the concept of not being able to do something, worked with her driver to transliterate the words into Arabic, Arabic. And so she taught them the song, and the children sang it to her, and were very proud. They sang it every day. This is my song, a song of all the nations, a song of peace for lands afar and mine. This is my home, the country where my heart is, here are my hopes, my dreams, my holy shrine. But other hearts in other lands are beating with hopes and dreams as true and high as mine. Two months later after that invasion, the only item that survived the looting and the ransacking of the Baghdad School of Folk Music and Ballet was that cassette tape of the school children singing. Sham al-Sharaf came to see her, and he had it in his hand. She listened to it with earphones and started to sing along. And then she stopped because he was shedding tears. 
I invite you to stand with our chorus now and sing the words to that song. <laughs> 